Well, if everyone would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans is one of our favorites, no doubt. <laughs> of course, October is Reformation Month, even though today is indeed November the 1st. Oh, I had figured that today would be as good of a day as any other to to talk about um, a particular doctrine that we always do uh, every year for Reformation Month. We choose a particular doctrine and then we expound on it and we'll go over it in light of the Reformation that occurred yesterday, 503 years ago. And let us remember something, too, about the Reformation. Is that the Reformation, as important as it was, and no doubt it was a, a revival of the true gospel, uh, and Luther being very instrumental in that, and, and Ulrich Zwingli, and, and Calvin, and all these guys, we have to remember that our history as Protestants does not go back just 500 years. That our history of holding to the gospel, as we do even now, goes all the way back to the Bible itself. We are taking from the truths of Scripture, and we are bringing them out and applying them in our lives of what we should believe and how we should practice uh, the Christian faith. This is what Luther did. He went back uh, to the Scripture itself and brought that out. So let us remember that our history doesn't start 500 years ago, that it goes back to the Scripture itself. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And our text is going to be verses 31 to 39. <clears throat> you know, we we often talk about the work of Christ in the past sense. He, he was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. We comfort one another with uh, talking about the love of God manifested for us in the work of Christ. We talk about his life. We talk about his death, his resurrection. Now, we use this, of course, and rightly so, by the way, we use this to comfort one another, to say, you know, in any instance of where we doubt the love of God towards us, let us look then and let us see the love of God manifested, because it is in the cross and in the work of our Lord Jesus that the Father's love is put on display, the Son's love is put on display uh, in that one act, that the Father sent the Son into the world to be our propitiation, our satisfaction before him that we could come into his presence uh, and receive grace and mercy and to know the love of God. And we do this rightly, by the way, this because no doubt the climax of all human history, everything converges at the cross. Everything from the Old Testament promises converge on the cross because it is Christ himself who pays the penalty of all the sin of everyone who was in the Old Testament or any other believer, you could say from the beginning of creation until that moment. His death also is what covers and atones for the sins of every believer thereafter. Salvation was always by grace through faith in the coming Redeemer, and we look back on his fulfillment. But, of course, it is, it is right to look at the cross of our Lord and to see the, the greatest demonstration of the love of God. It, another aspect of God's love that we see and we talk about, at least in the present, is the giving of the Holy Spirit to us. We are comforted by the continued work of the Holy Spirit as he resides within us, as he conforms us to be more like Christ himself. Uh, he is our guarantee of the inheritance that is yet to come, as the Apostle Paul says. 
uh, we we see and and rightly again we rightly see uh, God's love displayed in the giving of the Spirit of God to us to teach us and to guide us and to strengthen us through this life. And these things we do rightly so. It is right to do this. It is right to bring up these particular truths and to put them on display that we can that we can see the love of God and all of that. The thing that we end up neglecting, however, is another work of Christ that is an ongoing work of Christ. And when we're, we're all guilty of this, where we talk about Christ's work, mostly in the past, here's what he did for us. We talk about the present work of God through the spirit of God, that it is the spirit of God who is doing all of these things in the present time while our Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> and while that is true, we miss another important aspect of the work of our Lord Jesus that is indeed a demonstration of his continued love for us, and that is his intercessory work on our behalf. <clears throat> it is through the scripture of the, the pages of the New Testament that we understand this work of Christ, that it is an ongoing work. It is not just he did one particular thing in the past and then that was it for him. He showed his love one time in the past and now he sends the spirit of God along with the father to demonstrate that love. That is indeed true, but he is, is also demonstrating his continued love for those that the father had given him through his intercessory work. And this is what we're going to be talking about today because this is a vital aspect of the work of Christ that we miss often. And one that is so marvelous and magnificent to consider uh, of what Christ is doing on behalf of believers, even in the present time, that his love for you was not just demonstrated then, but his love for you is demonstrated in his continued work, this active work that he alone performs. And we see that uh, in this particular text. It is in others, no doubt, and, and those will be referenced, of course, but it is here in this one particular text that we find those aspects of Christ's past work and his continued present work. <clears throat> so let us give our attention then to this amazing work of Christ. Let us give our attention to the word of God as we recount these things. So Romans chapter 8 will begin in verse 31 and we will read to verse 39. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the continued work of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that he accomplished on our behalf at the cross. We thank you for all that he accomplished, uh, every aspect of it in that time, in his incarnation, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. But Father, we also thank you for his continued work as our mediator, his intercessory work as our high priest. Father, we thank you for this continued demonstration of his love towards us and your love towards us. I pray, Holy Father, that we would indeed be encouraged and comforted by this portion of your word, that we would be amazed at the marvelous work of our Lord Jesus Christ that is still continuing even now and will continue until you call us home. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. Father, be glorified in your people this day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we have in this one passage of scripture, we have the Apostle Paul referring to the past work of Christ and what we often refer to, and yet his continued work as well. And these things are a demonstration of the one who loves us, who is performing these particular uh, works on our behalf. Now, of course, Romans, let's set the context here for chapter eight of what Paul has been going over. You have this epistle written to the Church of Rome and around maybe A.D. 57, around that, that time frame. <clears throat> and this, this letter is saturated with the gospel of our Lord. The apostle talks about in the very first chapter how he can't wait to get there to Rome and to preach the gospel to them. But in the pages that unfold thereafter, that's what he's expounding. He's expounding the gospel and different aspects of the gospel. He, of course, he talks about uh, justification uh, of the people of God. He talks about, first off, how all the people uh, everywhere are indicted by the Lord for their unbelief, for being in their sin, for turning and, and straying away. And he talks about how the wrath of God is, is abiding on all of them, which it would include us at uh, the time before our conversion. Even for the elect of God, you can you can absolutely understand this, that until the day came that you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, that you were dead in sin and under the wrath of God. This is true of even the elect of God. But he indicts all mankind as being under the wrath of God because of their sin, because being uh, under his or breaking his law, that he is now uh, under the wrath of God. He then talks about, though, how the justification comes uh, to the people of God. He uses Abraham as his great example of Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness or imputed to him as righteousness. He is laboring the point that you are justified by faith and by faith alone in Christ, not by the works of the law, not by any other works that you are justified by your belief in the Lord himself in the gospel. And he refers to, of course, there in chapter five of how all mankind is plunged into sin and death because of Adam. And because of Adam, uh, all mankind are separated from God. 
they are alienated from God. And it is through the one work of Jesus Christ who then reconciles us back to the Lord uh, because he is the one who performs all that the Father had required of us. <clears throat> he speaks of uh, this reality as well, amazingly, there in chapter 6, of in light of your justification, that means the implication then is that you are now dead to sin. You are not to have sin to be your master any longer. The old self was crucified with Christ, he says, and sin is no longer your master, and you are now to consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, and first reading that, that is a very difficult thing for us to understand because we do sin. And the people of God, no doubt that he's writing to there and understanding that sin is no longer their master would still have the question of what happens then when we do sin, because that is something that we all continue to do. And the Apostle Paul even goes into some of that there in chapter seven of Romans in order to demonstrate as well that in his own life that he struggles the, to do the things that he should do, that this is the reality of the experience of his readers. Sin is no longer our master, and we are now our old self being crucified with Christ, and we're con to consider ourselves dead to sin, and yet we still sin. And so the apostle speaks to the people, his readers there, in the reality of their own experience and their struggle with sin, and he uses himself as an example to say that he struggles to, to do the things that he wants to do, and he struggles not to do the things that he knows is very sinful. But then his praise goes to the Lord himself when he says there at the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then he flows into chapter 8 with the uh, expounding of these great truths that this is how we are to be considered dead to sin. Sin is no longer your master, yet we still struggle with sin. So who's going to save us from this body of death? Thanks be to God. And then he begins to give an exposition of that in chapter 8, where the first thing that the apostle says is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I love these words. Listen to this. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he says from the very beginning there. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in you on account of him. This is going back to what he has previously said of how, and using Abraham as his example, of how it is that salvation comes to the believer. It is the imputed righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness, his perfection that has fulfilled the law of God that is now credited to the believer. So the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us as if we had done it because the Lord Jesus himself has done it. And so he then talks about throughout this chapter and throughout these verses that, of course, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So he is he's addressing the state that he, that they are in, that we are all in of how it is that we can be justified before God and yet still sin. He's talking about the deliverance that God will give, of course, to those who are his on account of the righteousness of Christ and <clears throat> the grace of God being demonstrated in his work. He says in verse 15 of chapter eight, carrying on here that you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, whereby you can cry out, Abba, Father. You didn't receive a, a spirit of slavery, but of adoption, that in light of all of these things, you are now adopted into the family of God. You are now considered to be a son and daughter of God. And in light of that, he talks about how the spirit intercedes on our behalf and helps us in our weaknesses. He's addressing, uh, again, their struggle with sin. And in, and in light of all of that, and, and giving them this great uh, comfort and encouragement to their hearts, we find then in verses 29 and 30, what's called the golden chain of salvation. A very familiar to us to express to us and to express to his readers of the love of God towards them and the security that they have in Christ, though they still struggle with sin, they are secured by his finished work. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, Remember this word, foreknew, those whom he loved intimately beforehand. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, your salvation is secured. And it is secured on behalf of what Christ has done for you. And how it played out within history through this golden chain of salvation that is referred to here in verses 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew that he loved intimately beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Christ himself is the one who came and fulfilled the requirement of the law. And it is his righteousness now imputed to you so that for those whom God calls, you're, you're receiving the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And on that basis, you're justified. And on that basis as well, your glorification is secured. So here is the amazing thing. <clears throat> Coming down to our particular passage of Scripture, that the Apostle Paul is again talking about the work of Christ and expressing the justification that we have in Christ. His first question that he says here <clears throat> in this section, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And again, he's talking once again about our justification is the focus that we're reading here. In light of everything that he has said throughout all of these, these uh, chapters of Romans, in light of all that he has said there in Romans 8 specifically, the apostle asked this rhetorical question, what shall we say to these things? In light of all of that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And isn't that that is the great comfort that we have uh, in Christ Jesus himself. If God is for us, who is against us? <clears throat> I forget what theologian it was who said it. He said that one man with God is in the majority. It doesn't matter how many is against him. If he is with God, he is in the majority. And that is indeed how it is with us. Uh, we struggle with sin, no doubt. And we 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 have guilt, of course, because of the sin that we commit. 
But when it comes down to it, the, the encouragement that is given to the people of God here is that if God is for you, who is against you? And that is even expounded further here in these this text by reminding you of this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Your salvation is secured. Your struggle with sin is real, but the security that you have in Christ on account of everything that he has said here is sure. It is guaranteed. And the question then goes back to, you know, who is against you? None can be against you because God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And how will he not then, in light of that promise that he has kept, freely give us all other things? The greatest promise that God has ever made, if it's okay to say this, the greatest promise that God has ever made throughout the pages of Scripture is that of promising a Redeemer, that he would give his only begotten Son on behalf of sinners. And if this was the greatest promise and the most difficult promise, if it's all right to say that as well, the most difficult promise that God has ever made that he indeed fulfilled, then any other promise apart from that is something much easier and lesser, in fact, uh, than the reality of what happened at the cross for God to fulfill this as well. So if he fulfilled this great promise by sending Christ into the world for your justification, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything that he's been saying here in the pages of Romans in this letter of what blessings that we have received and what blessings of salvation that we have received. All of these things are just adding up and adding up that you have more blessings and blessings and blessings being given here, <clears throat> which actually should teach us something as well in the fact of understanding the blessings of God, not as necessarily material things, not as, well, God's going to allow me to get that. And God's going to allow me to get that. We talk about, oh, I'm so blessed. Well, you are blessed in the sense of what God has done for you personally in Christ Jesus. He delivered him over for you, for your transgressions, for your sins. He took your punishment. And in light of that, you are now called by God. You're regenerated by God. You're adopted by God. You are uh, freely able to come before the presence of the Father and cry out, Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment. It's, it's daddy. You are able to call God your father in light of that, that sin is no longer your master, that you can actually please God now on account of his regenerating work by the spirit of God. You can do all of these things, and these things have all been given to you and granted to you because the father has done all of this through the son. He has freely given us all things in him, this life that is yet to come of eternal life. Of, of the continued presence of God that we have with him, uh, of the strength that he provides and the comfort that he provides and the encouragement that he provides, all of these things that we experience in the now are all blessings of God that he has secured for us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then the question comes, well, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. You know, this would be a very important aspect for the readers of this epistle to understand for this church is in the heart of the empire it's in rome right there where all the the religious practices of the heathen gods is going on where the all this idolatry is going on you know there could be an aspect there of because of the christians rejections of the roman gods and of the rejections of all the ceremonies that that were being done uh, by the pagans themselves 
that there's an aspect there of the what criticism that they would receive on account of that that you guys are not following you know the commands of our gods you you guys are not honoring rome you guys are not honoring caesar you you're just troublemakers you're you're trying to stir up trouble by your rejection of all of these things and so there could be a level of uh feeling of of guilt on their their particular uh behalf there and then the reminder comes to them that even though they're receiving all this criticism from everybody else that they're not doing right by the state or they're not doing right by the empire that it then comes back to this if god is for you who is against you and what an encouragement that would be to the readers of this epistle by the apostle paul who is he who condemns right it's god who has justified you and this is something that we can relate to we can <clears throat> we experience it at least to some degree or another because we stand against the lgbt movement or we stand against a woman's right to choose when it comes to abortion because these things are blatantly wrong and sinful in the eyes of god there is no justifying it whatsoever people can try to do that but the, when the reality of it is set before us there is no justi justification for it but there are instances where because of people that are criticizing you and slandering you you're just trying to take facing and standing firm in what it is that god has actually said and therefore when we have those times of of guilt or or whatever that we are reminded then just as the readers were then if god is for you who is against you remember what the one theologian said one man and the one man with god is in the majority regardless of who is against one man with god is in the majority and what a great comfort that that is for us and enduring all the things that we have to endure and the criticisms and the slanders that we endure even in our own day this is a great reminder to us if god is for you who is against you it is god who justifies it is god who has demonstrated his love for you and the fact that he is for you because he gave his only son for you and all the blessings that came through him and through his work so there is indeed a great comfort that is being given here in reference to the past work of christ you're justified because of what christ has accomplished in the past the love of god is demonstrated to you uh, now because of what christ has done in the past the spirit of god and all that he is doing in your life is is as a result of the work of christ in the past but now he then begins to talk about the present work of christ something that we tend to neglect or sometimes that we just don't catch perhaps <clears throat> that now we are justified now our lord jesus has indeed after he accomplished his work is sitting at the right hand of the father but his work is not done here's what he says who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who accomplished our salvation and security at the cross. But then he goes on to say, who also intercedes for us, that even in heaven at the present time, that he is still interceding on behalf of the people of God. This is also a demonstration of his continued love for them, that he didn't just have this great heart for the people of God and what he was getting ready to accomplish 2000 years ago but that his heart is still put on display and is still manifested in his continued intercessory work even in heaven even right now 
we talk about intercession, we talk about how <clears throat> how you have a third party that comes in between two other parties to bring reconciliation there. And I, indeed, this is exactly what Christ has done. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It is Christ who has uh, united and reconciled us to God through his finished work, uh, through his his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has reconciled us back to the Lord. And this work is something that he is continuing to do even now in heaven. <clears throat> and so when it comes to this particular aspect, this is what I want to focus on, is he who was raised and all of that is the one who is still interceding for us. Christ's intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of his fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. It is not a reflection of anything lacking in that because we might ask ourselves, well, why, why is it that he has to continually intercede on our behalf if he secured all of our salvation and everything at the cross? Why do we still need that now? This is taking the work that he accomplished then and continually applying it to us applying it on our behalf. Uh, it is the moment-by-moment -moment application of Christ's atoning work. And this is how, in this particular text, that even the Apostle Paul is uniting these two aspects of justification and his intercessory work. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It is Christ Jesus who was raised and who intercedes for us. He's uniting these particular things. Uh, one writer says this, intercession is the constant hitting refresh uh, of our justification in the court of heaven. Christ's intercessory work demonstrates the continued love of Christ toward those he died for. We do not just speak of the love of God manifested at the cross, but in his personal intercessory work for each of his elect. Because this is the work of our high priest. The scripture, especially the writer of Hebrews, is laboring the point that Christ is our uh, priest. He is our high priest. And this aspect of his work is our high priest of interceding on our behalf, perfecting our prayers before God, praying on our behalf, is a demonstration of the, the personableness, uh, or, or rather how personal it is of your salvation. That he is indeed interceding for you, specifically you. He is indeed silencing your accusers uh, before God in heaven. <clears throat> it is an amazing thing to consider the work of our Lord. <clears throat> One of the Puritans, Francis Turretin, he says this, Christ's intercession is an act of his preserving our salvation. Because we offend God every day, we need an advocate to intercede for us every day. Isn't that right? Because we sin against God every day, we need an advocate, one who is our defender in the courtroom of heaven, used a little bit differently than how the Holy Spirit is our advocate, as he, as the paraclete comes alongside of us, and he is the one who advises us and teaches us and all of those things. Uh, this is a little bit different when we're talking about Christ as our advocate, because Christ is the one who is our advocate in heaven, who is 
who is defending us against our accusers. One in particular, of course, that we would look to uh, as our great accuser is indeed the devil himself. One of the great passages of scripture that really expresses the intercessory work of Christ is found in Zechariah chapter 3, if you would turn there with me. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 3, listen to this here. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken away your your iniquity, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. What a beautiful picture that is of the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus Christ before the Father in heaven. That as you have Satan that is accusing us before the Lord, that is pointing out, look at what, the, look at, they're still sinning, they're still doing these things. And what is it that our Lord Jesus does? What is it that the Father does? He rebukes Satan. And you have this beautiful picture of our salvation that is being given there in Zechariah 3, Whereas once we were clothed with our filthy rags, the Lord has removed our filthy rags and he has clothed us with festal robes. This is the same idea that Isaiah talks about when he says that I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. And this righteousness is indeed the righteousness of Christ that was granted to you at the cross that was secured for you at the cross that is imputed to you through faith at God's appointed time. And it is the Lord Jesus now who stands in heaven, who is on your constantly on your behalf, pointing these things out to the father. Now, <clears throat> uh, it, this is, this is something important to understand. This does not mean by the way, that somehow that the father is continually angry and continually wanting to, to pour out wrath, and Christ has to continually intercede on behalf of sinners. Uh, this is not what that is meaning. <clears throat> let's, <clears throat> let's understand this, that the Father is just as much for you as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. Because when you think back to the redemptive work of Christ, and you think back to... <clears throat> What it is that Christ is doing, Christ is fulfilling the, the, the will of the Father. That in eternity past, you had what's called by theologians the covenant of redemption. That the Father wills the plan of salvation. The Son agrees to carry out salvation. And the Holy Spirit agrees to apply salvation for those whom Christ dies for. So you have this inner Trinitarian uh, plan for, for the redemption of God's people. The Father sends the Son. The Holy Spirit then is sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of or apply the benefits of Christ's work to them. So it is not as at all that the Father is just so angry all the time and the Son has to try to pacify the Father. The Son's intercession, here's what one writer says the Son's intercession does not reflect the coolness of the Father, but the sheer warmth of the Son. 
Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid toward us, but because the Son's heart is so full towards us. But the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. The Father is delighting in the Son coming before him and interceding on our behalf because the Father's love was shown to you just as much as the Son's love was shown to you in the work that he accomplished on your behalf. <clears throat> the Father is not hesitant to receive us or so harsh that the Son has to continually plead. Let us not think of it in that, in that way because that is simply not true. The Son pleads before the Father out of his love for those that he died for. And one writer talks about, and in, in <clears throat> using this example, think of a big brother who is cheering on his younger brother in a, in a race or something like that. Even though the, the younger brother is, is in first and he's running towards the finish line, the older brother doesn't just sit down and just wait knowing that he's going to win. And, and you know this as well. Even when they are getting ready to score and, and you know this is getting ready to happen, what are you doing? You're on your feet and you're cheering them along. And this is the kind of delight that is being conveyed through the intercessory work of Christ towards those that are his, towards those that he died for. And the father is delighting in the, the asking of the son on behalf of you. What does he say to the son? The father delights in the son. He's not th this, this harsh character that, that we would think of that, that Luther would object to as well coming out of the Roman Catholic Church where you had the priest that had to intercede on your behalf to Christ and Christ had to intercede for you before the Father. And the implication there was that the Father was more harsher than the Son and so the Father can't resist the Son idea. So, th But that's not what's happening here. The Father delights in giving to the Son what the Son asked for. If you think about this in Psalm 2, Listen to what the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2. He says in verse 8 to the Son, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Here's what the Father says to the Son. Ask of me, and I will give it. Because the, the Father delights in the Son, and the Son delights in the Father, and the, and the Son delights in coming before the Father in, in, in asking on your behalf. It's interesting that uh, John Calvin, he describes it in this way. He says, quote, having entered the temple not made with hands, he constantly appears as our advocate and intercessor in the presence of the Father, directs his attention to his own righteousness so as to turn it away from our sins. I love how that is described. That as the Son is in heaven, with standing at the right hand of the Father, and the accuser is coming before him, uh, accusing you. He says that the, Father, the Son turns the attention of the Father to his own righteousness on your behalf. That is amazing. That is an amazing way to describe the intercessory work of Christ. The Father delights and giving the son what he asked for. Because the father loves the son and gives him all things. And if you go back and you read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, you see the love that God has, the father has for the son, and the son has for the father. And the, this is the amazing thing when you talk about Christ's intercessory work. Not only is he <clears throat> 
silencing the accuser before you, but he is praying on your behalf. This is part of him interceding for you, is that he is praying for you. One of the greatest uh, <clears throat> aspects of the work of Christ, the work of God himself, the God-man, is knowing that he is praying for you. The theologian Louis Burkhoff says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. You think of that. That's very convicting. It is a consoling thought knowing that Christ is praying for us even when we neglect our own prayer life. You think of what, how Jesus talked to Peter. And he says to Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's what he says. But I have prayed for you. So that when you are restored again, strengthen the brethren, strengthen your brothers. And then you have, of course, Jesus praying to the Father in John 17 on behalf of not only his disciples, but you have him praying on behalf of those who will believe through their word, which includes all of us. He is praying for you, the Lord Jesus is, and he is delighting in, in performing that intercessory work. And the Father is delighting in the Son performing this intercessory work on your behalf. We think to ourselves sometimes, as we were talking about last week, though, we think that there are just some aspects that are in our darkened soul that just cannot be forgiven. That Christ is not going to intercede on our behalf. We talk about theology, as we were talking about last week. We know all of our sins were forgiven at the cross because of the work that Christ performed and the Father pouring out his wrath upon the Son and the Son satisfying the, the justice of his Father against sin. And yet, when it comes to our own experience, we have those questions. <clears throat> Surely, and this is the deepest part of, in my soul that is still darkened, where sin dwells. Is Christ interceding on my behalf then? And I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7. Talking about Christ is our high priest before God. He says, chapter 7. <clears throat> we'll jump in verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever or save to the utmost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He can save to the uttermost because... He lives always to make intercession for them. That word, uh, that phrase, to the uttermost, it is it's denoting comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness. That when he has saved you and he is interceding for you, he is interceding to the uttermost for you. Even the places of your life in which you think that that you're still you're still contaminated, as it were, by sin and that. That grace of God still has not reached to the inner core of your being. He says, I have saved you and interceded for you to the uttermost. I love what this theologian says. Our sinning goes to the uttermost. 
but his saving goes to the uttermost and his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us what then are the benefits of that because of christ's continued work before the father and delighting in performing this work for you as a demonstration of his continued love for you and the father's continued a demonstration of love for you and granting to the son all that he asks on your behalf the apostle paul tells us back in romans chapter 8 as we are finishing out this chapter here he says who will separate us from the love of from the love of christ will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine nakedness peril or sword he goes into all these different things and asking that rhetorical question, what's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Are any of these things going to separate us? Is there then <clears throat> you have verses 38 and 39 that's really just summing up the totality of, of existence. Is there anything in existence that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And his answer is basically saying, I know of none. And why? Because the son was delivered over for your transgressions. He was raised for your justification. It is he who has justified you. And as a result of what he did in the past for you, he continues to do for you in applying his atoning work to you through his intercession on your behalf. So that nothing, regardless of what comes in our nation and what doesn't come in our nation, there is nothing that will separate the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus towards you. That is the great beauty and the comfort and the encouragement that we have because of the intercession of Christ on our behalf. Because Christ is for you, who can be against you? Because Christ is pleading your cause before the Lord, before the Father in heaven, who can ever bring an accusation against you? The world will have plenty of accusations to give to where we even feel at times guilty or saddened by whatever may be going on. But Christ has prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And Christ is continuing to pray for you as your intercessor in heaven. And if he is for you, none can be against you. And if his work of intercession is a demonstration of his love for you, there is nothing in existence that can ever separate you from that. What an amazing Savior that we have. What an amazing gift of salvation that we are able to experience even in the present time, not only by the Father's grace that is still towards us, not only by the Spirit's continued presence within us that is continually uniting us to the Father and to the Son, that He is guiding us and teaching us and strengthening us and comforting us and encouraging us and rebuking us, but we have our Advocate in Heaven who is still working on our behalf. What an amazing God we serve, the triune God, who are all working together for the benefit of those that the Father chose, of those that the Son died for, and of those that the Holy Spirit is applying the benefits of Christ's work to. You serve an amazing God, dear friends, and let us not at all forget that or take it lightly, but to rejoice and to stand in awe of the continued work of our high priest. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning of verse 20, 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a moment's word of prayer and then uh, we will be dismissed. Gracious God, how we thank you for the continued work of our Lord Jesus. What a loving Savior that we have. Of he not only gave his life for us, that he lived for us, but that he continues to work moment by moment as our intercessor. And how we thank you so much for all that he has done on our behalf. We thank you for the, the entirety of the love of God that is demonstrated to us and how you view us now and what Christ has done for us and continues to do and what the Holy Spirit is continuing to do in our lives. Father, thank you. And I pray, Father, that if any under the sound of my voice does not know the love of God, that you will open up their eyes and apply the gospel to their hearts, that they will acknowledge before you that they are indeed a sinner just as we were, that they recognize that sin is offensive to you, and they recognize that they are under your wrath. So, Father, for those in particular, encourage their hearts with the gospel of Christ, that he accomplished everything that you required, and that through repenting before you and believing in him, they can know your love. They can know the continued work of Christ. They can know your grace. And they can know the love of the Holy Spirit as he dwells with us. Father, lift up their countenance towards you and give them peace. How we thank you and we give you all the praise and honor for all that you do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.